You're listening to the first episode of Below the Radar, a new podcast produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. We interview guests on topics ranging from environmental, social justice, and urban issues, arts, culture, and community building. My name is Am Hall, and our office is launching this podcast as part of our Knowledge Mobilization Project at 312 Maine. This week, we're speaking with Maria Dobrinskaya about proportional representation. Maria is the BC Director of the Broadband Institute, which has been campaigning on the yes side uh, of this topic. Hello, uh, welcome uh, to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Am Johal, and we're here today with Maria Dobrinskaya with the Broadbent Institute. Welcome, Maria. Thanks, Am. Thanks for having me. Right. I, I was going to ask just some um, uh, sort of for our, our listeners who are quite new to uh, the referendum on proportional representation, just some of the, the basic things around uh, what they'll need to do uh, in order to vote, because I think it's been out there, but if you're not like a political junkie, it's quite new for people. So if you could maybe share a little bit of that. Certainly, and yeah, it's um, it's just starting to heat up now as well. So Elections BC is going to be mailing ballots to all registered voters in BC uh, starting the week of October 22nd, um, and uh, hopefully none of that will be delayed by a, a postal strike. Uh, but it is a mail-in ballot, and so registered voters will receive a ballot in the mail, and it's a two two questions on the ballot. The first question is very, very simple. It's, do you support our current first-past-the-post system, or would you like to move to a proportional representation system? And the second question offers three different uh, types of proportional representation, a dual member, mixed member, and rural urban. And um, voters have the option of ranking those in order, one, two, and three. And voters can either um, they can choose to only vote for the first question. Um, they can choose to only vote for the second question, although I don't recommend that. Um, and if they vote uh, for first past the post, they still are um, able to, to rank their, their choices for the second part of the question as well. All of the ballots need to be back to Elections BC by November 30th, so received by November 30th, so people need to um, get those in the mail basically by the 22nd or 23rd. There will be uh, referendum offices um, being set up. I believe those start um, November 5th or right around there. And um, so for people who may not have a, a permanent address or who may be a registered voter at a different address or did not receive a referendum ballot, they're able to go to the referendum office and, um, and pick one up as well. Now, uh, previously in, in BC, we had uh, referendums during the election cycle in 2005 and 2009. And uh, with the Broadband Institute, your, you, um, your organization is actively uh, supporting uh, the yes side. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, uh, how you came to the determination to support uh, the yes side in the in the referendum. So that definitely predates me, Ed Broadbent, um, who is the organization is is named after and who's the chair of the board, um, has been a long time supporter of proportional representation, um, decades, uh, and uh, and has a very strong commitment to democratic renewal. So the the institute overall is engaged in a number of um, a number of issues, but democratic renewal and the way in which we engage with our democracy and our governments is sort of um, underpins all of the other issues that, that we're involved in. So the organization um, on a national level was quite active after the 2015 federal election when Justin Trudeau uh, promised it was the last election under first past the post and and we were very excited. There, a, a 
very broad coalition was formed to support that change. Um, that coalition ended up sort of moving more towards um, ensuring that Justin Trudeau was going to wear the broken promise, frankly. Um, but And there was a lot of cynicism that came out of, of, of that process. A lot of young people in particular were engaged in that election, uh, both to get Harper out, but also around a lot of the, the, the change promises that Trudeau was making. And so um, that was disappointing. But the, the Institute overall um, really sees an opportunity here in BC um, to basically to, to lead the way in North America, frankly, around electoral reform. There's a growing appetite across the country. Um, we're seeing, you know, the, the Doug Ford election in Ontario, um, the, the outcome of the New Brunswick election, uh, provincial election recently, where it was sort of unclear for uh, a certain amount of time um, who would emerge as the, as the government. The Quebec election um, recently as well, majority government with around 37% um, of, the, of the support. So in a multi-party political environment like we have, um, first past the post really can't accommodate that. And, um, and so as we see more and more of these examples and people are increasingly frustrated with either their vote not counting or there being some sort of distorted outcome, um, I think this issue is, is, is definitely not going to go away and, and is certainly on the rise. And, and it pairs with also what we're seeing uh, down south for sure, but a, a number of jurisdictions around the world um, around the erosion of our democratic institutions and, and the lack of, of faith or, or belief that young people in particular have around the ability of those institutions to um, do what the the promise of democracy um, is you know essentially that we we all should be represented and we all should have a voice in government yeah so it's a it's a fairly major uh, thing to um, undertake in terms of changing an electoral uh, system uh, overall and, and in previous um, attempts to bring forward uh, a plebiscite in 2005 2009 there was various uh, thresholds that were set at 60 percent support uh, various levels of regional support and in this um, referendum is very much a kind of 50 percent plus one uh, scenario and in a context where uh, twice um, the public didn't support it at the thresholds that were set uh, is there going to be a question of the legitimacy of this uh, referendum if it passes at a, a fairly low, low rate? Uh, yes, I definitely think there is. I mean, I certainly hope, I would love to see really high voter turnout and a really clear uh, mandate from voters to, to pursue um, a change in our voting system. But again, I think we're in a bit of a vicious cycle around voter disengagement and uh, in general sort of cynicism and people being pretty turned off by politics in general. Um, and so it's hard to engage those same people in change the voting system. I do think if we are able to be successful, um, the government has has work to do on the other end to to build legitimacy and and confidence in the voting system to create some consensus and and there's going to have to be public processes for sure that help the under, uh, help the public both understand the systems but also give some input into some of the um, the pieces that are unanswered um, that are facing the voters right now. Uh, some of the arguments that are raised. Um, against proportional representation. Bill Tillman, others have uh, raised this around um, extreme voices entering into the, the legislature. But we have people like Donald Trump, we have people like Doug Ford um, as well. Uh, but uh, in in this um, um, iteration of the, the referendum, the threshold for PR is set at 5%. It tends to be a kind of normative uh, level that sit in many countries. If you take a political science class, 5% kind seems of the to natural be a place. Yeah. And so to me, uh, one of the questions I would ask is, you know, is that um, set at a high enough level to keep 
extreme voices out because there wasn't actually a lot of public consultation on the level of the threshold uh, that was said. And in a context like uh, BC, uh, I could totally see a scenario where um, uh, a neo-fascist, far-right um, political party that forms uh, could actually gain a foothold mm -hmm. in the legislature with 5% of the vote, whereas under the current system, uh, they wouldn't find that place inside the legislature. They wouldn't get the media attention in quite the same way because in a way, uh, as much as there are many, many faults with the first-past-the-post system, uh, there is a kind of social cohesion ca that can happen uh, by uh, keeping kind of the parameters of um, what's um, acceptable in terms of public discourse in a particular way. Uh, when you set something at 5% at um, in a place, you can have um, uh, a parties that, that do come up. And, and I could totally see in BC, as mm -hmm. someone who grew up here, been yeah. to all parts of rural BC, now that is democracy in well some I, sense, I think that's part of what it is is it's a trade-off so we we have to do we want to see the neo-nazis in our midst or not is part of the question I think that we can't deny that they're that they're there I mean I think that um, BC is definitely a much more racist province than than many people of my skin color would like to admit um, but I think that 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 um, that kind of hate-based politics is already lurking in in within the broader uh, party system, and certainly we see that at the federal level um, with the conservatives. And in, in the last um, uh, federal election, the barbaric, the cultural barbaric hot tips hotline, um, and uh, and certainly a lot of the associations between the conservatives and and. Um, organizations like Rebel Media. Um, so, I mean, I think that the rise of extremism in general is is a big concern for for all of us. I think there's questions about whether we give them, um, you know, 100% of the power with with 37% of the vote. I mean, in Quebec right now, we have a government who has said that they will they will use the notwithstanding clause to override the Charter and Rights of Freedoms around a lot of um, cultural symbolism and, and anti-immigration policy. So, uh, one of the things I think that really does work to combat that kind of uh, radical um, extremist politics is strengthening our democracy. I mean, I think that where uh, there is space for that type of politics to grow is in the alienation that so many people feel from our political system and the ways in which their material needs and, and their, the, you know, the struggle that they feel on a daily basis are not reflected in government. Um, you know, I also think that there's questions about um, you know, whether whether that kind of politics enters into the legislature is one thing, but what do they do when they get there? You know, the the I find it highly unlikely that either of the major parties would work with them. Any major party that forms a coalition um, with an extremist group has to go back to the voters and, and stand by that affiliation as well. So, I mean, I don't think that denying the existence of that kind of politics is necessarily going to solve the problem for us. And if anything, um, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and so having some clarity around um, how how much support there actually is for that kind of politics and, and how do we actually ensure that we are marginalizing those voices and not allowing them in to situations where they could be part of a government caucus that has 100% power for four years. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges for me is just that I think that the threshold was set without a lot of public consultation. Like for somebody yeah. like me, I would have prefer to hire threshold like 10% or you know whatever is the right one but 5% for me seems too low to keep out um, 
extremist views that I think are intended to undermine social cohesion. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not going to get into the math around it because I'm. I'm. I'm not a political scientist in that way. But as you said, there is a sort of you know looking in particular. I think at MMP, there's a natural threshold around five percent based on the sizes of the of the ridings. Um, but that is one of the trade-offs. The higher you get that threshold the less you actually are getting um, a representative system, right? And so mm -hmm. are those trade-offs worth worth it? The, the, the threshold is actually quite a bit lower in a number of, of pro-rep countries. Um, but I also will say 5% is, is sounds low, but it's quite hard to get that, that level of support. The Green Party in Ontario um, didn't reach it in the last election as, a, as the fourth party um, on the ballot. They were at 4.5%. So, I mean, a different environment for sure. And, and I, um, I mean, I also think that there's, there's that's another one of the reasons why um, what's on offer right now is the opportunity to experience pro-rep under two elections and then have another referendum to, to see whether or not it's working for BC. Yeah. One of the things uh, that other people have uh, brought up is sort of uh, having larger ridings and that might undermine some rural areas, et cetera. But I'd like to bring up maybe a slightly different point, which is that in some particular um, uh, constituencies um, because of the social issues within them or you know various historical reasons um, I bring up like say Vancouver Mount Pleasant when I remember when um, Jenny Kwan brought up the notion of the need for supervised injection sites that was deeply unpopular in the public it was deeply unpopular in her own party uh, but uh, given the, the the complexity of her constituency she could actually go out say that publicly take a hit from her own political party mm -hmm. and from the general public, but she could actually float that out as a legitimate public policy idea according to the emergency that was happening there. And when we widen and make larger the geographic um, aspects of a constituency, sometimes that ends up taking us to a more nord normative sort of centrist type politics where some of those uh, policy ideas can't be floated out in quite the same way without um, uh, the sort of party discipline that emerges. Party discipline exists under first past the post, yeah. uh, but I think that there are some specific things uh, that the system allows people to do in geographic areas. You know, I grew up in Williams Lake, where if you saw the elected person in the produce aisle and you didn't like something they did, you'd give them an earful. That's just the culture of politics, right? And so I do think that that what what how do you answer um, when we start making those ridings larger? How do we still bring up those policy ideas uh, that don't just become normative and centrist and that type of thing? I think there's, um, I think that's a good question. And I think there's sort of two pieces of that. Um, so again, depending on the, uh, depending on the system that's chosen, I think it's a different, it's a bit of a different answer. Um, um, in terms of like mixed member, the writings would not be that much bigger and you would have still your local representative in addition to regional representatives. Um, so I think there's two things. One is that you are likely to have multiple representatives. So either in a, you know, either in a ge geographic area that gives sort of strength and numbers to multiple MLAs from a same party who are wanting to raise a an issue uh, that's relevant to their constituents, um, and um, and particularly in an area where there's a lot of uh, support for one party, um, you know, again, the geographic region or geographic area would be larger, but there would be more MLAs bringing that issue on behalf of their constituents. But the other one, I think, is in relation to your the comment around party discipline, and while it will certainly still exist um, under any of the pro rep systems, uh, one of the things that is 
I actually believe it's weakened under pro rep. I think that when every vote, when it's a percentage-based election, um, when we're not talking about safe seats and, and swing ridings, I mean, one of the things about Vancouver Mount Pleasant is it's a safe, it's considered a safe seat for the BCNDP. And so the, you know, not that I don't think any of the MLAs who've represented that, that riding have done that, but in a safe seat, there's inclinations often for MLAs um, and for parties certainly to not, stick their neck out they don't have to um they don't have to do anything to earn the support of the electorate in that riding um and they can take it for granted and sometimes we we see that happen but in in ridings that are not safe and ridings that are swing ridings and go back and forth what you're likely to see elected is um a range of mlas from from different parties or and or independents and so then if the issue um the pressing issue in that area that constituents are, are addressing or wanting addressed um is not aligned with a particular party you will have other MLAs that represent you that can bring that that issue to the legislature and so I think that's really important there's a distinction right now between um, the sort of constituency service that I, I recognize all MLAs provide through their constituency offices that is nonpartisan that helps citizens access government services and the like but it's a distinction, um, it's different than the work that they do in the legislature. MLAs cannot vote on two sides of, of an issue. And so if you have an MLA that shares your values, that is committed to the issues that you're advocating for, you're lucky. But if you don't, you need to basically wait four years and try again um, because they can advocate as you know on the opposition side, but there's not really any room for collaboration or sort of focused outcome, you know, policy outcomes that benefit the entire area. So I think that, um, you know, what may be lost minorly in some local representation is offset by basically having more representation that's values aligned. It may not be geographically aligned. Um, but that's values aligned, and that ensures also that every region of the province will have representation in government, um, even if it's not of the party of your choice. So recognizing, again, the distinction between um, MLAs being able to offer uh, what they're able to do in government versus in, in opposition. So my next question sort of around um, notions of volatility and social cohesion. I, I lived under uh, PR for, for one year of my life. I lived in Haifa in okay. Israel, so it was a form of PR. And that's a particular place with a kind of um, a permanent kind of conflict Well, is zone. Israel and Italy get brought <laughs> up a lot yeah, as examples yeah. of it not working, but I suggest yeah, yes. both places yeah. have and, uh, yeah, their uh, own history. Sure, are, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, my point is that uh, I think that there are um, a lot of um, bifurcations that happened within political parties. At the time that I lived there, 0304, the head of Likud was Ariel Sharon, and Netanyahu was driving a kind of right-wing wedge, and then Sharon moved and started his own party, Kadima. So there was all these, these kind of constant splits um, happening over kind of policy issues or somebody trying to rise up within the party. And, and, and if you had a certain type of uh, presence in the media sphere, it brought out certain types of leaders out to the front. In a way, the politics have shifted uh, to the right there for, for particular reasons. I'm not arguing that PR mm. shifts things uh, to the right in a, in a general sense. Um, but um, I'm just wondering, um, you know, I could totally see a scenario in, in BC where we, we've gone from a kind of two-party system into a kind of three-party system where I could totally see a scenario where the liberals would split in half the social conservative side to the kind of more moderate center-right federal liberal side. The NDP would split with like a left-wing faction 
the Greens have a kind of pro-business side and a more left faction. I could see that splitting up. So I think one of the, the outcomes of uh, voting yes for PR might mean a more fragmented sphere, with more choice for electors, but not that different than, say, the civic election, even though that wasn't done under PR. It was a change in the uh, funding system. But that um, could make things a little bit more complicated in terms of uh, the fragmented possibilities. More choice, people are presenting a different set of ideas, people might feel closer to certain parties, and, and you could argue that that's a more uh, complex uh, democratic system that, that is closer to people's values and that type of thing, but does that fragmentation not undermine uh, a kind of social cohesion that's developed under the system that we've had? So, yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing some of that fragmentation happen anyways. I mean, this was, again, with the New Brunswick um, election or the Quebec election. You know, very arguably, first past the post may have worked well at some point with only a two-party system. But as we increasingly have uh, more parties, it's, it's unable to accommodate it in a way that um, still enables, um, you know, the voters' will or attention to be reflected in the legislature. And we've seen that federally as well with the conservative party. We've, it's happening in Alberta where they split and they get back together. So I don't think it's particular uh, to pro-rep, but you're correct that what happens under a proportional system is that it will be more reflective of voter intention. And um, does it, you know, those, those parties will still basically have to work together and will likely form similar coalitions as exists now, the difference is that the voters uh, will be clear in what parts of those coalitions have the most power. Basically, the the, the various parties on um, you know that are in a negotiation to form a coalition government only will have the power that's attributed to them by the voters. And so, if a party um, runs and and is able to command a certain amount of the electorate, they're able to go in and and, and negotiate um, on their issues. So I I don't really I mean I again I think that we just get a much more sort of transparent process to a lot of the the, the the politicking that's already happening, but largely happens either within parties themselves around the negotiations that happen at party conventions and, and you know, where the, the particular directions or party leadership races where a leader sets a certain direction around the, the way that they, they want their party to operate. Um, but we'll see it. We'll see it play out more in in both in elections as well as in the legislature. As a result, a lot of a lot more policy discussions will happen in the legislature. Right now, our current system allows for a lot of those decisions to be made uh, in the premier's office and to have that power uh, centralized. So there are trade-offs. If you want a very sort of stable, clear system where one government, one party is able to implement their agenda in a very you know clear way without any opposition. Um, there's a lot that's appealing about first past the post, um, but again, it doesn't reflect the. It, it's very ill-equipped to to uh, reflect the voters' um, intention. And so, if if you want more collaboration, if you recognize that sometimes things might take longer, but that the outcomes will likely be better and longer lasting, and and meet a larger range of of um, the needs of British Columbians, um, I think that pro rep will offer that. I'm just wondering around the, I think in the, in the previous um, referenda in, in 2005 and 2009, I, I actually think they would have passed, in my view, had they gone with MMP in a way. I feel like uh, STV was kind of really steered by some of the academic experts in front of the uh, citizens panel. That's just my own view. I don't disagree. Uh, because in, 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 and of the, of the three options, um, as, as somebody who supports um, 
PR, I'll likely, likely be voting for the MMP option because of its simplicity. I get, you know, you vote for your local person, you vote for a party, and that's going to make things more fair. I can't say that I necessarily understand the other ones, or uh, or I've looked closely enough to uh, want to try to understand them. It's the simplicity of the other one that I like. But I'm wondering if you can maybe outline the, 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 three, the three options systems. for the for the audience. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I will say that I think that all three options were selected uh, based on the experience um, that BC had with with STV. Um, so you know, first and foremost, all three are are what I would call uh, describe as mixed systems. So we are we are electing an MLA. A local MLA first, and then um, regional MLAs or additional MLAs um, to to ensure proportionality. Uh, dual member is is um, probably offers the most simple ballot, um, and it's essentially a combining of two ridings um, that we have now. And um, parties will list could list up to two candidates. So, but you only get one vote. So you would vote for. You know, two and basically the NDP and the BC Liberals is who would run two candidates. You, you don't have to run two candidates, but you would vote as you do now in your riding. You would mark your ballot. Whoever, um, whichever party received the most votes or whichever candidate um, received the most votes would uh, be elected as the local MLA, and then the second person um, would be you know allocated based on the overall party. Um, uh, vote right, and so dual member in, is the only one of the three that applies a province-wide proportionality for that second that second member. Although they would be, you know, maintained within the region, so somebody who was on a ballot in Kamloops wouldn't end up representing a Vancouver um, riding. Um, MMP, as you uh, mixed member, as you said, is uh, probably the most familiar. It's the system that's used in Germany and New Zealand. And um, in the system, as it's described on the ballot, we would still continue to elect 60% uh, of our MLAs the same way we do now. The riding sizes would be slightly bigger. And then we would we would elect a maximum 40%. So it could be lower than that. I mean, there's some math, frankly, around, um, again, ensuring proportionality. Uh, but 40% would be elected on the regional basis. And so I just want to emphasize the regional aspect of it because I think that's really important. There's some concern, uh, certainly from rural BC, around the lower mainland deciding everything for the rest of the province. And so ensuring that proportionality is regional, um, you know, means that that's not going to happen. So what you would, uh, as you say, you would elect, you would vote for your local um, MLA as well as a handful of regional MLAs, depending on, on the size of the region and how many, um, how many candidates um, are, you, attributed that uh, rural urban is a hybrid system and um, and so for for rural uh, for urban it's the STV system it's a single transferable vote and so that's a ranked ballot where you know ridings would Vancouver would probably be two ridings and you would you know you would rank um, you would elect six or seven uh, MLAs in your riding and you would do that uh, by listing them in order and then in rural BC would would have a, a mixed member so they would elect a local MLA and some regional MLAs and I think that one really is was a way of both recognizing that the, the work that the citizen assembly did and the fact that many British Columbians did support SDV so it was on offer on the ballot but also addressing the the criticism that a lot of rural BC had that the ridings were just geographically way too large for them to feel that they had representat local representation. I'm going to stick with MMP because I find it the least wonkish. So 
Anyways. I, I, I will just say, I mean, I think that's not, I think a lot of people are, are yeah. going in that direction and, and some of the public polling that we've seen in over the last month or whatever or so is, um, has shown like MMP to be the favorite for yeah. sure. One of the questions I have, which is I think an issue with politics writ large, be it first past the post or proportional representation, is this sort of reliance on political parties in terms of choosing their representatives and their kind of assumption of internal democracy within uh, parties. Um, you could say that the labor movement has a certain type of influence inside the NDP. The business community has one over labor, um, various things over the, the Green Party, different factions and those types of things. And so under a, a kind of a PR system where there are party lists, um, there is uh, perhaps a little bit of concern around how those lists are created, how they're put forward, and who has uh, influence um, over them. And I kind of worry about, you know, are our political parties stepping up to um, have the kind of internal democracy that fits within transparency and, and other types of things? Because if in some degree we're handing over an aspect of the candidates uh, to the party in the way that First Past the Post does, mm -hmm as well, quite frankly, but at least they're running for nominations or those types of things. For some of these party lists, they may not be running for nominations. They may be appointed, but that happens in the other system as well. well. Yeah. So I just, how did, would you answer I mean, that I, concern? I, I think that's a valid concern. I, I appreciate you acknowledging that it's not a concern particular to proportional representation. I mean, think right now we see candidates appointed all the time. We see sort of, you know, leader's office override, local constituencies, um, uh, desire to have a local candidate. Um, I don't make assumptions that the party lists will not go through a nomination process. Certainly the, the parties that I belong to, I don't feel the membership would tolerate that. Um, and so, you know, so that we'll see how that plays out. But what I would say is that for me, um, this referendum is not just that we end up with a, with a, a proportional system, but that, that we're involved in the process of it. So I think that um, part of it is it's going to frankly disrupt um, the way parties operate and and some of the people who who hold the reins regardless of what party we're talking about um, who understand how to campaign who know how to how to work our current system um, are no longer or they're going to have to learn new tools alongside a whole bunch of other people also learning um, how the system works so that disruption the ability to sort of remake some of the processes that we have within party systems um, I, I'm quite excited about to be to be honest because I think it gives us a big opportunity to actually challenge some of these um, processes and in, in the ways in which parties um, behave. I, you know, I do want to add, though, I think that, I mean, I share your concerns. I will just mention people who are interested in electing more independents want to seriously look at rural-urban. I think the, the urban part, one of the things about STV that people do like, um, it, is, it is the system that's most likely to um, elect independents. But I also... Um, um, lost my train of thought there. That's so. all right. We can, we can, <laughs> we can, uh, we can. Um, oh, I just, no, I know yeah. what I was, parties are important. I think that there's a, d the disdain that we have in general for politics and the, the, the criticisms of, of political parties, um, you know, again, are part of why I think we need to change our system and political parties are necessary vehicles in our democracy. Um, but I think what you said is correct. The assumptions that they have internally um, around some of their own internal democratic processes um, should be challenged and will be necessary 
necessarily by having a new system in place that forces everybody to, to relearn how these things are done. Yeah, in, in the previous uh, referendum in 2005 and 2009, the political parties tended to stay what I would call kind of neutral-ish. And um, in this uh, campaign, um, some people are more out there than others, but it seems like uh, parties or their leaders are taking kind of positions or in the background on the yes or the no side with the NDP and the Greens on the yes side, liberals against. And the conservatives, I think, uh, also supportive, I think, uh, is what I, what I heard lately. But I'm just wondering, um, I have heard this also within members of political parties. Uh, you know, the, the liberals or social credit have won uh, majorities, vast majority of the 20th century. The CCF, the, the NDPs won like three times. And with the NDP and the Greens uh, being in power now, they did run on it. It was part of their, their mandate. Uh, but a feeling that a kind of green NDP coalition could uh, uh, work in this system much better than uh, first past the post. And is there a concern around a kind of partisanship behind the campaigns? Uh, related to uh, perceived outcomes that will benefit uh, on side, which is, I think, always apparent yeah. in politics as well. But yeah, politics are in politics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I do. I mean, historically, uh, issues around electoral reform have been sort of legitimately cross-partisan or non-partisan. Um, a lot of the appetite for electoral reform in British Columbia came out of the 1996 election, um, which was so-called wrong winner election. Gordon Campbell's uh, Liberals won the popular vote, and Glenn Clark's uh, New Democrats won a majority government. Um, and we've seen certainly at the federal level, um, you know, historically, it, uh, the Reform Party, and again, parties that are outside of the main two parties often are the ones advocating for um, electoral reform. I think it's both, it's problematic in, in a number of ways, because there, I think that most vote, you know, there's a large group of voters that don't so-called belong to either party, and that um, I don't make assumptions about what the outcomes will be in terms of from an ideological perspective. What I do know is it will be an accurate reflection of where the electorate is at. And so we don't know, you know, is the are the majority of British Columbians supportive of more green initiatives, of more, you know, um, investment in social programs and the kinds of things that we're more likely to see from so-called progressive governments? Um, or do they favor, you know, less more of a free enterprise approach, you know, that's essentially, we'll have a more accurate um, understanding of that and parties will have to compete around ideas um, in all parts of the province in a way that they don't actually have to do now with, with sort of swing votes and, and safe seats. Parties can cater to a very narrow group of the electorate and, and you know, 200 people in Courtney Comox in the last election essentially determined the outcome and we see party platforms and, and, and campaigns, you know, where the leader but where the leaders tour buses go, what's in their platforms tend to cater to a group of, of voters that they need to, you know, that has a lot as way more power than other parts of the province to, to, to determine the next government. Um, so no, we could very easily see a, a, a BC Conservative, BC Liberal, right wing BC Green coalition in, in BC. And, um, you know, and I think that, uh, but for me, the most important thing is that what the government that we have is actually the kind of government that British Columbians voted for. And that's what's not happening under our current system. Yeah, and interesting, the federal conservative leadership race or the provincial liberals have used forms of proportionality. It's and a ranked ballot. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a ranked ballot. It's not quite the yeah, same thing. Yeah, but yeah. I think that's a good point is yeah. that there are a number of ways, you know, none of the, like, there are a number of 
ways to elect people. And, and we inherited this system as a result of being a British colony. We never voted on having first past the post. Uh, Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. are the only um, outliers amongst, uh, you know, OECD countries having um, first past the post system. So, I mean, I think that examining whether our voting system continues to, to serve us in increasingly um, complex political environment is is necessary. Are we able to really have that kind of discussion in the partisan um, framework that we have right now? I mean, I think part of this polarization, the Greens and the NDP on one side, the Liberals on the other, is how we see the behavior in the legislature, and it's part of the sort of black and white polarization um, required a first-past-the-post, where you get political points for opposing your, you know, opposing the people across the aisle from you rather than sort of looking at what policies do we all have, all have in common and, and where, you know, how can, wh where's the consensus to sort of serve British Columbia as a whole? Oh. Maria, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I just, I appreciate you taking the time. I think that um, as unfamiliar as the system is to British Columbians, I, I know people are sort of daunted by the question. Um, you know, most of the world, 90 countries in the world use some sort form of proportional representation. And so I think, you know, us us really looking at how well we're served by our current system and, and um, making sure we mark our ballots is a, is a worthy exercise indeed. So I appreciate you contributing to the dialogue around that. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, you. Maria, and thank you to our producers, Melissa Roach, Jamie Lee Gonzalez, and Maria Cecilia Saba. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week uh, with uh, another um, edition of our podcast. Thank you. That was our conversation with Maria Dorbinskaya, the BC director of the Broadband Institute, who's been campaigning in support of the proportional representation Referendum, And next week, we'll be speaking with Bill Thielman from the No Side. I uh, hope you do get a chance to uh, get out and vote. And please do subscribe to our podcast online. Mm -hmm.